So while lenders might be willing to allow for specific COVID-19 related amendments or waivers or specific COVID carve-outs, if they allow borrowers to take too aggressive a read of EBITDA or too borrower-friendly interpretation of it, there could be repercussions with respect to basket compliance going forward. From our remote offices in New York tri-state area and across the pond in the UK, welcome to No More Risk Better Credit Sites Podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across the global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I am here with Charlotta Chung, our head of U.S. legal research, and Bell Yang, our senior legal analyst in the U.K., Hi, Shalada. Hi, Bell. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Hello. Let's start a conversation on COVID-19. It's causing all sorts of stress in the corporate landscape, and that in turn is causing stress on a variety of legal documents, including credit agreements. I'd like to start by discussing financial maintenance covenants, which often force borrowers and creditors to confront tricky situations. As the adage goes, operating performance hurts, covenants maim, and liquidity kills. You know, how does the covenant amendment process work? So borrowers will typically approach their lenders to seek either waivers and amendments if they've already breached a covenant and they would need a waiver, or if they know that they're about to breach and they want an amendment in advance of a breach. I would say that the relief that lenders are willing to give and the concessions that they seek in return from borrowers are specific to the situation. For example, a lender may not be willing to give a borrower much of any lead way, and they might seek to severely constrain the borrower on a go-forward basis in, by imposing strict limitations in exchange for a waiver or amendment. But for lenders who have more confidence in a borrower and its ability to bounce back from COVID effects, you might not see it as significant concessions being demanded in exchange for amendments. Or they might offer temporary covenant relief without really much ask beyond perhaps a consent fee or some very minor amendments. It's not atypical in the process for a borrower to approach lenders with proposed terms for the amendment, and lenders may or may not organize into a group to push back on the request or seek harsher terms, depending again on the quality of credit and the specific facts of the circumstances. I would also say that in this context and in this time, lenders are probably not incentivized to call a default if it may force a company into bankruptcy. This is particularly, I think, an acute dynamic for retailers where the thought is that a bankruptcy would eventually force a liquidation. Obviously, liquidation sales aren't really easy easy to execute when retail is shut down in a number of states or only available on a very limited basis. We had a recent bankruptcy case here on the East Coast with Modell's Sporting Goods, where the bankruptcy was filed and then essentially put on hold for a period of time because it was going to be liquidation. And obviously, you can't hold liquidation sales when the states in which the stores operate are not allowing any retail sales to take place. So I think from the European perspective, in the European market, we don't have the same level of transparency and disclosure around credit agreements. So we're not as familiar with the process on this. So what I would say is similarly to US companies, European lenders are having, and, and the companies, the borrower companies are having early and hopefully constructive discussions. And we don't have all the details and whether or not these waivers have been paid for in the form of basis point. But we know that lenders have been asking for timely and transparent disclosures in the form of cash generation statements, liquidity metrics, business strategies, caveated forecasts even, in order to give them confidence that potential breaches are pandemic related and not a sign of the beginning of the end. Of course, 
as you know, also, some European countries have moratoriums out on enforcement of loan contracts in a default scenario because of the pandemic, such as France and other countries, such as Germany and Spain, have suspended insolvency filings. And in the UK, we've even seen the regulatory pressure, and I, I think this is probably true throughout the EU, from the PRA, which is the bank's regulator, which has come out and encouraged banks not to default borrowers who cannot meet financial covenants solely because of the pandemic. So that also has encouraged lenders and borrowers to reach a, a more amiable conclusion. Now, in Europe, we've seen mainly covenant holidays or waivers. And the reality, I think, is that most companies that have asked for RCF waivers have gotten them. And we saw a wave in the first quarter and the beginning of the second. So a lot in the retail, travel, leisure, consumer space, TUI, Tendum, Matalan, Dufry, William Hill, others in services such as Ellis, WFS, Locksam. And we certainly haven't heard of a company being thrown into default because of their inability to meet a financial covenant. Well, obviously, there are some companies that are in restructuring discussions because of their overleverage or because they may have been in trouble prior to the pandemic. And I think the difference of what we're seeing is what shape these waivers are going to take. So are they for one period, such as Ellis, which is now having to negotiate the second waiver? Is it for the rest of the year? Is it until 2021? What kind of covenants have been added in? Is there a minimum liquidity covenant or is it waived for the year with a reset in 2021? And even, I think, in some industries, such as autos, where we haven't seen a lot of waivers, if any at all, the crunch will come at the end of the second quarter and the companies may be even now negotiating so that they don't breach their covenant or they don't they get a waiver for any potential breach well thanks bell i think that's something that comes across in that discussion and charlotta you alluded to it is that it's often not in the lender's interest and similarly not in the borrower's interest uh, to have a default that's triggered by a covenant um charlotta maybe you could speak a little bit to what you've seen are some of the negotiating points when these two parties come together to deal with amendments and potential waivers Sure. Thanks, Chris. We're seeing covenant relief take a multitude of forms across different sectors, similar to the examples that Bell noted for UK and Euro companies. Companies are maybe receiving temporary flexes for a shorter duration of time, and this could be for higher permitted leverage ratios or lower fixed charge or interest covenant compliance ratios. In other cases, we've seen changes to the calculation of the ratios, whether it's increased cash netting that's permitted or exclusion of certain types of debt from being included in the debt part of the equation. I think these are all sort of temporary fixes that are designed to ameliorate and address some of the biggest COVID impacts, but not allow for sort of a full scale restatement or wholesale changes across the agreement for the duration of the agreement. On a more limited basis, borrowers have also sought and received the right to defer principal payments. I think for companies where their primary concern is liquidity preservation, this can be helpful. Other trends that we've seen are replacement of a maximum leverage ratio with a minimum liquidity covenant or the substitution of EBITDA from prior quarters in the EBITDA and leverage ratio calculation. For example, Outfront Media is a company where this occurred and they basically were able to substitute in EBITDA from the second and third quarters of 2019 for the equivalent quarters in 2020. 
this is generally, like I said, it's been for a limited number of quarters rather than for the duration of the agreement. And I think one of the other things that I would highlight here is that where a company's potential maintenance covenant breach is the result of a revolver drawdown or liquidity shore up or, or both due to COVID-19 impacts, these types of waivers and amendments make sense from a borrower perspective in that they provide temporary relief for the period where they expect the COVID impacts to be most acutely felt. And lenders who don't want to force a default and can extract concessions in exchange for the waiver and amendment are advantaged because it doesn't give the borrower too long of a leash. I will say one of the other things that is interesting is that for borrowers who have springing maintenance covenants that are not triggered except if a certain amount of the revolver is drawn, this can actually be a meaningful sort of benefit. If they don't need liquidity right away, they can basically keep their leverage higher than the covenant would allow, but just not draw down the revolver in a way that would trip it. And I think the other thing I would mention is that for lenders who are consenting to these type of amendments, we're seeing fees in the range of around 25 basis points. And other sort of gives that they're getting are interest rate step-ups or increased LIBOR floors or increased constraints on borrowers, including prohibitions on restricted payments for the duration of the covenant relief period, increased amortization after deferral of principal payments, or decreased basket sizes, whether it's for restricted payments or the incurrence of additional debt or liens to secure existing debt or new debt. Thanks, Shalana. A key consideration there as companies uh, are approaching lenders about potential covenant compliance is the calculation of EBITDA and naturally, you know, how does COVID-19 affect those calculations? You know, the measurement of true EBITDA has long been in the eye of the beholder and given the challenges that we're seeing, both you, Shalana and Bell have written about whether companies can add back COVID adjustments within the scope of existing definitions, but we're also still seeing in some places COVID-specific carve-outs. You know, what's going on there? Well, Chris, <laughs> this is a, a subject that's very dear to my heart, as you said, because we have published on this before. And of course, it's a particular concern in Europe, because whilst lenders certainly receive compliance calculations and have a lot more granularity around how these calculations have been made, they aren't public. And due to the nature of bond covenants, which are incurrence rather than maintenance, and so only measure when action is taken, bondholders don't get the same level of detail. And are usually just told whatever action the company is taking is taken in compliance with the covenants. They're left to try and work backwards to see if the numbers work. Now, the big concern here, which I highlighted when I published on this, is that companies are using the existing flexible language around the calculations of EBITDA and consolidated net income. So the fear is they'll add back losses relating to disruptions caused by the pandemic or exclude expenses. And we would worry that this would actually include addbacks for revenues lost because of the pandemic. And then this would increase the headroom under their covenants to incur more leverage and increase their debt capacity. And again, bondholders would have no granularity on how they did this. Although we suspect that if the numbers that buy side and sell side analysts come up with would be materially different from those that the company is impliedly using, there could be some hard questions asked. And of course, it's been such concern to the investor community that ELSA, which is the European Leverage Finance Association and representing leverage finance investors, actually published a report stating that the use of EBITDAC, which is EBITDA ex COVID, to calculate debt capacity is inappropriate and would allow companies to incur debt, including debt priming existing investors against metrics that are backward looking and therefore wind up with more leverage against uncertain forward earnings and cash flow. But as we said earlier, companies have actually been asking for waivers instead of creating a stir amongst the analyst community with creative numbers. We haven't seen too much of what was happening in the US with what Charlotte just discussed, the companies requesting to amend documentation, for example, to use 2019 numbers. 
Yeah, I would say that in the U.S., similar dynamics and concerns drive the COVID and EBITDA discussion here, the concerns that Bell raised, such as increased headroom under the covenants, depending on how you count the EBITDA or wildly divergent EBITDA numbers. I think that the reason that we are seeing specific carve-outs is because for lenders who typically have greater disclosure than, than bondholders do into calculations, they want to be able to maintain control of this variable. And I think that allowing for specific COVID-19 carve-outs and enumerated exclusions, they may mitigate the risk that a company will take an aggressive uh, global adjustment to EBITDA, which would, I think, introduce that impact on covenant flexibility in the future, where a borrower might seek to add back things like employee restructuring expenses or costs that are driven by COVID-19 operational changes. I think that those might be a little bit less of a concern than potential revenue loss add backs or, or something like that. In either case, I think that that makes lenders wary that there would be spillover effects on their covenants. I think this is exacerbated by the sense that covenants have become essentially uh, toothless, given sort of how borrower issue friendly they've evolved in the market recently. And so while lenders might be willing to allow for specific COVID-19 related amendments or waivers or specific COVID carve outs, if they allow borrowers to take too aggressive a read of EBITDA or too borrower-friendly interpretation of it, there could be repercussions with respect to basket compliance going forward. I think there's also a difference in sort of how messaging is disclosed. T-Mobile, for example, is a company where in its recent earnings report, they disclosed a certain amount of COVID-19 costs that it excluded from its first quarter adjusted EBITDA. But in that case, we saw that as more of a market communication issue rather than one that had a material impact on covenants, which I think may be why they were more willing to be forthright about how that was added back. Yeah, and interestingly, Charlotte, the high yield market in Europe, which has been far more closed than I think in the US, there have been an, a few deals, I'd say maybe four or five, a bit more than that. But in those deals, we've passed through them quite carefully to see if there have been any COVID-related specific language. And we've seen the most language, obviously, in the risk factors, which is typical as you have lawyers drafting these documents. But we've seen, we had one deal with a COVID claw, which was Merlin allowing a 40% claw back if they got money from the government related to COVID. But otherwise, there hasn't, or there doesn't appear to have been special language directed towards a pandemic or excluding losses or adding back, rev, you know, lost revenues because of the health crisis that the world and the lockdown measures that the world is going through. And that may be, it may be partly because we are, investors are jumpy and they would jump on that language immediately. If, and if they're nervous already, it may not, may not help the deal. Or it may just be that they didn't think it was necessary. Well, thanks, Balance Shalada. I think you've also seen in some of these circumstances that issuers and lenders have sidestepped the issue. You know, going forward, particularly in leisure and retail, it's really hard to calculate what earnings are going to look like. And so we've seen, you know, the emergence of minimum liquidity covenants uh, in lieu of those financial maintenance covenants. You know, that reflects clearly the decimation of earnings for a large segment of the corporates. But do you guys see any specific concerns related to the use of a minimal liquidity covenant? 
Yeah, I think that for lenders, one of the key risks in the replacement of leverage with liquidity is that uh, a lot of these companies short up liquidity by doing revolver drawdowns. So while liquidity stays inflated, it's actually due to increased leverage. And for a, a lender who has lost the ability to sort of maintain, I, I would say, leverage over a company as a result of a leverage maintenance covenant, they've just lost the ability to, to do that. And I think that this could be a concern if uh, sales don't bounce back and revenue doesn't come back in a material way, it could just allow the company to bleed the cash and to end with leverage significantly higher than the lenders would otherwise be comfortable with, or would, that would have been permissible under the, the previous covenant. I think one of the other things that's interesting is that a company that has inflated cash on hand might be able to use that cash being held as an asset to issue new secured debt. If they have limitation on liens language that's based on asset holdings, this could allow them to incur new secured debt that's basically inflated as a result of that. I think Royal Caribbean's recent secured debt issuance, they executed this sort of opportunistic liquidity raise that was based on inflated secured debt capacity because they had previously incurred debt and increased their cash on hand. Thanks. I would say over the last you know, six to eight weeks or so, as you know, the markets have opened up first in the U.S. and then in Europe, there's been a lot of focus on you know, what we might call an emergency mode for both borrowers and investors. You know, as we look at liquidity over leverage as being the most important issue, are, are covenants a problem? Fix those. Is liquidity a problem? Fix that. You know, as companies are issuing debt and sometimes creatively using you know, uh, secure debt on partial asset pools, partially secure debt, what should investors be focusing on as companies are using the open markets to fill those liquidity gaps? Yeah, I think it's, Chris, I think it's really interesting because as Charlotte said, companies are issuing secure debt and, you know, may not be something that investors are necessarily expecting. I think what investors need to look at now as the liquidity squeeze continues for a lot of companies is that they need to look first at the very straightforward, what is the additional debt headroom and the limitation on debt in this covenant? Consider how the ratios are calculated and what flexibility you know, as we've already discussed, perhaps in EBITDA and consolidated net income, what flexibility can be used by the issuer when it's making these calculations? Then they have to look at the definition of permitted liens to see what assets that are not already pledged as collateral could be pledged to support this additional debt. And then they have to look at the definition of permitted collateral liens to see how, you know, if there's collateral already pledging the bonds or, or already pledging, already pledged to support the RCF or other senior loans, whether or not that can also be pledged to support either pari passu or super senior debt. You know, talking to some restructuring lawyers or just talking to other investors in the market, issuers are undoubtedly already looking at what assets exist at non-guarantors that haven't been pledged or indeed outside of the restricted group. Structural subordination could happen if the non-guarantors can pledge their own assets to support debt that they can incur. So three things, structural subordination, effective subordination to the value of the assets and contractual subordination. And it's, when you're doing that, it's also important to look at baskets that in permitted debt, for example, that may not actually be quantified. So for example, right now we have a live situation with McLaren Group, which is the high-end F1 sports cars and technology group. And it has quite small headroom in its credit facilities basket and general debt basket. But they have a basket where they can incur debt equivalent to 100% of designated contributions, which are equity contributions made or which they got through the sale of capital stock. And they had received 300 million through an equity raise earlier this year. So that is 300 million of debt that they could potentially incur. You know, and I think that, you know, whether or not they can actually do that commercially is perhaps a separate question. But I think we also 
there have been situations, you know, more in the US where companies such as J. Crew moved collateral outside of the restricted group through use of relatively standard language in the restricted payments basket. So investors should be looking at whether or not collateral can be released and how can it be released with 90% of the outstanding to release any collateral or 90% to release all of substantially all of the collateral. So I think these are all important points as to that investors need to focus on to check their protection. Yeah, I would say in the US, I think all of those concerns that Bell just raised pretty much carry over with respect to concerns about increased debt capacity, uh, layering unencumbered assets that are available for securing new debt. One thing that I might mention that I think is, is interesting is the question of whether lenders might look to MAC language in loan agreements to restrict borrowing capacity for borrowers who may be relying on remaining commitments under revolvers to access liquidity in the future and didn't do a previous drawdown. They might be concerned that there could be liquidity constraints. In this context, what I'm talking about here is the representation that borrowers are required to make that no MAC or material adverse change has occurred. This is sometimes drafted as broadly as any material adverse change in a borrower's financial condition or property or assets or a adverse change in their ability to meet their obligations under the loan agreement. In, in either case, this representation is a condition to both the initial loan closing as well as subsequent credit draws, such as revolver borrowings or letter of credit issuances. There was initial concern back in March that companies who were fully drawing down on the revolvers and were relying on that, that lenders might sort of clamp down and look to COVID-19 as a trigger for a MAC that would allow them and excuse them from extending credit. At that point, there was no real insight into how COVID-19 would evolve or how long it would endure. And lenders might be wary, I think, of declining to fund on COVID-19 being a MAC for a couple of reasons. One is, I think, the dynamic that we've discussed earlier, which is that lenders don't necessarily want to force borrowers into default, which could happen if they were to deny a draw, the company essentially would have run out of money as a result of that. And I think that for some lenders, if they decline to fund the loan draw request on the basis of a MAC and the borrower seeks to basically compel them to do so, and a MAC is found not to have occurred, there might be concerns about lender liability as a result of that denial. So far, we haven't heard any situations where a lender denied a revolver draw on that basis. And I imagine there might have been some where a borrower sought to draw and lenders were wary of lending, and there might have been some sort of private negotiation around how to resolve that situation. But I'm not aware of any specific cases where that occurred. That being said, I think, again, for borrowers who have left availability on their revolvers and may seek to access it later, if as COVID-19 has persisted and shutdowns have continued and been extended in, in many states, if the ramp up is slower than some might have hoped, or revenues are not expected to bounce back, I wonder that might lenders start to examine MAC representations with a more stringent eye, perhaps subjecting borrowers to greater scrutiny as to whether or not COVID-19 should be considered a MAC under that definition with respect to the, the, the condition for borrowing. Okay, let's talk about another source of uh, funding, uh, and, and that's state aid, which is particularly relevant in the European market. You know, this is fairly unconventional and, you know, Bell, could you speak to a little bit about how the state aid might change the regular rules of the road for the capital stack? Yeah, I mean, 
I think the first thing to note about state aid, which I get a lot of questions about, is that it is not in itself super senior. So the, the original framework allowed state guarantees for loans in addition to actual loans themselves and reduced interest rates. But this all has to fit within the debt incurrence covenants of the issuer, borrower, company. And regardless of whether it's done either through commercial banks, as it is in the UK, or whether it's a loan from a government bank, such as KfW in Germany. The other things to note about it are that France, for example, has actually prohibited additional security and guarantees for the for the guarantee, the government guarantee part of the loan. But the UK has not. So commercial banks within the UK who are approved banks giving these government guaranteed loans have to be still willing to lend and they will ask for super senior status or additional security or additional guarantees. And so the company looking for state aid has to find that within its covenants or has to find who has to go back to its, its bondholders or its lenders. France has also forbidden dividend payments and share buybacks, as well as putting the kibosh on companies that are based in tax havens. Uh, so if you want state aid, you can't do any of those things. And the UK was silent on this, actually, until its most recent amendment to the coronavirus large business loan interruption scheme which increased the amount that large corporates could borrow from 50 to 200 million, but then imposed a prohibition on dividends or cash bonuses. The state aid framework has actually been amended a couple of times, and the most recent amendment permitted recapitalization through equity instruments so that the state can now come in and invest either through common or preferred or even debt with an equity component. But that means that companies taking that state aid cannot make dividend payments, they can't make share buybacks, and they can't make payment of non-mandatory coupons, amongst other new restrictions. Thanks, Bell. Up to now, we've talked about the ways that lenders and issuers have tried to solve problems. And ultimately, there's situations when that's not available. And already, we're seeing an elevated pace of corporate defaults, Whiting, Intelsat, and Neiman, to, to name a few. At credit sites, we expect the issuer-weighted default rate to rise to 8% at the end of the year, with expected further rise in 2021. You know, this means that we have a busy calendar for attorneys coming up, but it also brings another question is, you know, is the system ready to handle an elevated pace of activity? I would say that restructuring attorneys definitely seem to be handling this well, busier than ever, most likely. But I will say that on a systemic basis, we are definitely seeing courts be nimble in their responsiveness to Chapter 11 filings. For example, in JCPenney, which filed very recently, they filed on a late Friday afternoon and the judge held a hearing on a Saturday afternoon. I don't think that's ever really happened before, but I think it just goes to show that everyone is keeping an eye out on sort of the, the very unique circumstances that we're in and being flexible and able to meet the needs of companies. Additionally, the one thing I think is important to note is that while we're expecting to see a default rate rise and we have seen a number of filings occur more recently, several of those filings, Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, for example, as well as some of the, the oil and gas companies, we've been sort of anticipating a filing for a while. And while COVID-19 impacts may have accelerated the timing on which they filed, I wouldn't say that anyone had expected them to be able to sort of get around it completely. And so I think for those cases where it's been anticipated, that's why you're seeing a little bit more sort of ability to be flexible in that. I would definitely reiterate what Charlotte said, that I think the restructuring law firms and, and advisors are definitely ready. The virus is a tough time for, for all of us, but certainly there's some opportunity into in the challenges that are ahead. Well, thank you both. And then before I wrap up, do you have any parting thoughts? From my perspective, I would just say, 
you know, a lot of the active investors now looking at deals are your typical, your smart distressed investors who really clued into some of the pitfalls that we've been talking about, who've looked through these covenants. I think it's important when investing to understand what your exit strategy is, as well as the consequences that may come if there is, in fact, a prolonged lockdown or even a second wave of infections, which may bring back a lockdown. You know, what sort of restructuring, especially in Europe with the different jurisdictions involved, what sort of restructuring might be on the cards, what level of the cap structure to invest in, and even understand, for example, in the UK, there's a new English Corporate Insolvency and Governance Bill, which was introduced been rushed in and it was introduced a couple of days ago and it permits for the first time cross-class cram down in a scheme of arrangement which could be a game changer so the courts could approve a restructuring plan even where one class of creditors doesn't approve it. Well thanks Belle. It's certainly been a busy time. COVID-19, earnings season, uh, new issue calendar. It's no rest for the weary so I really appreciate Charlotte and Belle for taking the time to go over some of the salient issues that we're seeing. Thanks Chris. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.